I'd invite you to turn to our scripture passage for today. And we are looking at uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. So Luke 9, 1 to 17. Luke 9, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks, and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, you know the heart of every single person here. Uh, You know those who are deeply struggling. You know those who feel lost. You know those who feel uh, like they don't know if they have anything left. And Lord, we pray that you who know all hearts would now speak to each and every one here through the power of your Spirit to show them the beauty and sufficiency of Christ and to build our lives up on him so that we would be truly changed by being here and worshiping you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when having a lightsaber battle with one of your kids, you will learn quickly that they don't play by the rules. At least the rules of Star Wars, or your rules, or frankly, any rules, it feels like sometimes. Uh, Because when you cut off their arm, they say, no, I have armor. And then when you cut off their arm with your armor-piercing lightsaber, they say, oh, but my arm can regenerate. And then when you knock the lightsaber out of their hands, they say, T, 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 which I've learned is, you know, what kids these days say for time out. And you better not violate their rules of time out or else you'll really regret it. 
But then when they cut off your arm and you tell them, oh, well, I have armor too. They say, well, I have an armor-piercing anti-regenerative lightsaber, so you can't grow back your arm like I did. When you have a lightsaber battle with your kids, you'll never win. Now, they'll never win either, at least officially, but their ability to make up new powers is greater than yours, and their ability to keep on making up new powers and new powers will eventually wear you down so you just surrender and let them know, okay, you win. I can't deal with this anymore. And, and there's something similar going on in our passage, maybe in a different way, but something similar. I think the older you get, the more you kind of lose some of your wonder and delight and your ability to imagine or think outside of the box. You have certain assumptions about how the world works and what is or isn't possible. And Jesus, though, breaks those assumptions here. He shows us that he's not operating according to the rules of the world. When he's faced with an impossible task, he doesn't look like I do, like we would, right? Now, how many turkeys am I going to need to feed this many people? But he has access to powers and abilities that are far beyond ours. Maybe to put it in a different way, it's kind of like Jesus has a jet and we have a pair of running shoes. And you face some task in your life and maybe it's like trying to run from here to Korea and you can make it a few thousand miles eventually, but then you'll come to a major obstacle called the Pacific Ocean. Or you can jump on a jet plane with Jesus and through his powers, he will take you to places you could never make it on your own. And see, when we face hard things in life, when you face insurmountable things, when you face things that you feel like will never change, all we have is a pair of running shoes, and our best option is to give ourselves to Jesus and to trust him to take care of those things that we could never manage on our own. This is the last sermon we have in Luke uh, until the new year, actually, or I think maybe right, after, right before the new year, uh, before we start our Christmas or Advent series, which is called peace on earth, question mark, uh, which we're going to be looking at over these next four weeks. Uh, how does the Messiah's promise of peace on earth reconcile with the fact that we don't see any peace on earth? So we're going to start that next week, but this will be our last sermon in Luke for a little bit. And what I want you to remember is simply this, that Jesus doesn't play by our rules. Jesus doesn't play by our rules. And we're going to look at it just in two ways. First, an empowered ministry, and then second, that God feeds his people. So first, an empowered ministry. We are entering a key moment in Jesus' ministry because up until this point, Jesus has really been at the center building his team, investing in his disciples, but he was the primary one to be doing the work of teaching others and performing these miracles. And here we see a real shift that now Jesus is empowering others to work in the ministry. And it's helpful to remember that Jesus had a, a large number of disciples, several hundred even, it seems. But within that, there was a smaller group of 12 disciples that he spent the most amount of time with. And he invested personally in their lives, training them and teaching them. And he's about to give them this power and authority to drive out demons and to heal diseases. And then it says in verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Now, when we hear about the kingdom of God or, or the kingdom of heaven, it can be kind of a, 
a strange term. What, what does Jesus mean by this? He talks about it a lot, but what exactly is it? And I think maybe most simply, it's helpful to think of the kingdom of God as those places where life is in harmony or the world is in harmony with heaven. So that in heaven, every part of heaven is in harmony with God. It is all beautiful. There's no stains or spots or wrinkles. There's no sin. There's no sadness. There's no tears. And when Jesus came down to earth and took on flesh and became human, it was like a little bit of heaven broke into this world and it began to spread. And God's big plan from the very beginning of the world was for heaven and earth to become one. So there would not be, no longer be any tension between life on earth and life in heaven, but they would become one and all of life would be in harmony with God. And Jesus begins that kingdom work by, we could say, inaugurating the kingdom of God here on earth when he showed up in a manger. And that work has continued until Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And there at the end of time, we see, what is it? Heaven and earth are finally one. That God's home is among his people. He doesn't need to travel back and forth or commute, or it's no longer a long-distance relationship, but we live with God. And that's the goal. And it started with Jesus coming down to earth and being born in a manger that very first Christmas. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, that's really what he's referring to. Those places where life is beginning to become more and more in harmony with who God is. And that's why we often see when the kingdom of heaven is proclaimed, it's tied to casting out demons or healing diseases. Because demons and diseases are two things that will not be in heaven. In God's kingdom, there's no sickness, there's no evil. And Jesus was ground zero for where heaven broke into earth. And it's like around Jesus, there's this gravitational pull of the heavenly reality so that when anyone comes into Jesus' orbit, their lives reflect more of that heavenly reality. And one of the reasons why there were these miracles then that were so prominent in Jesus' ministry was because the other key, the most important part of the kingdom of heaven, is that it requires people to have their sins forgiven to be able to enter it. Now, anyone can tell you your sins are forgiven, right? Maybe someone has told you that before, but you don't feel forgiven, or how do I know if I'm forgiven? I mean, I, I look the same, I, I maybe feel the same, and, and that's very different than, say, you tell someone, well, I'm going to heal you, and it's very clear whether a man who was born blind is now able to see. And so these miraculous signs that Jesus did are in some ways the proof to show, just as I can bring physical change, I can also bring spiritual healing to you. I can forgive your sins, which is a key mark of the kingdom of heaven, where all of God's people those who trust in Christ alone are forgiven and made holy and whole through Christ.
And so we see Jesus doing something remarkable here because he's not keeping that power to grow the kingdom to himself, but he's now delegating it to others. He's multiplying that ministry through other people. He's turning these 12 disciples, not just into groupies that follow him, but into kingdom ambassadors that he sends out into the surrounding villages to show that God's kingdom is here and to show proof of that by giving people glimpses of what life in the kingdom looks like where you're no longer plagued by sickness and you're no longer tormented by demons. And note here, though, that Jesus doesn't give his authority to every one of his disciples. Remember, he had probably several hundred disciples at this point. But he gives it to those key ones that he's invested in, that he specifically trained, who had spent time with him. And we see in this even something of a precedent that informs how we do church today, that God gives a spiritual authority to certain people for his work. And, and we would say that that authority now extends to pastors and elders, right? It's why we're about to begin a process of training future elders and, and those that are, meet the character qualifications and show the giftings for that are then called to have that particular authority. Now, it's not an authority to cure diseases, although you can find pastors that still advertise that ability, but it's specifically God's leaders are empowered with proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God and telling people where you can have your sins forgiven, where you can be made new, showing people Jesus who can transform your life. And then he gives the 12 disciples a packing list, which is more of like an anti-packing list. Take nothing, no staff, no bread, no bag, no money, no extra shirt. If I were there, this would make me feel nervous. Because I was a Boy Scout. Be prepared. I always, I'm always telling my kids every time we go on a hike, make sure you bring a rain jacket, right? Because it can always rain up in the mountains. I like to have a plan. I like to be self-sufficient. I, I want to have everything in my bag because I don't want to have to ask somebody else for something that I need. But this is really interesting here because even with all the power that Jesus gives his disciples, he doesn't give them the power to be self-sufficient. He, in fact, is giving them a greater dependency on others for their hospitality. Now, I mean, if I were there and I get the power to drive out demons and to heal the sick, I kind of want the power to also just make a loaf of bread when I'm hungry, right? So I don't have to worry about that. Or at least know what, where my hotel reservations are so that I can know that I'll have a good night's sleep because I, I would imagine driving out demons is exhausting and I don't want to have to be worried about where I'm going to sleep that night. But even in all the power that Jesus gives these 12 disciples, he still makes them dependent on others for basic necessities. And here we see that Jesus is showing that he plays by his own rules. Because if you or I were about to head out on a trip like this, We'd pack some snacks. We'd make hotel reservations. We'd look on Yelp to see where the good restaurants are in the area that we're going to go. I'd imagine if you were going to head down to Las Vegas, I think maybe last weekend or the weekend before when Formula One was in town, right? And you say, hey, let's drive down to Vegas for the weekend. And we're not going to get any hotel reservations. We'll just find a place to sleep when we get there. And the other person's like, are you crazy? Every hotel is booked. We're going to end up sleeping on the street. 
And so why is Jesus giving them an anti-packing list? It's to show that no matter what powers they have, they are always dependent on him for everything. That no matter how good they get at something or how amazing they can do in their ministry, they need to trust that he is their provider day after day after day. That he's the one that will feed them. He's the one that will take care of them. Right? Often, if you're gifted, if you've seen success in your career or your life, it's so easy to think it's because of my hard work, my gifts, my ability to do this thing. And it's so easy then to forget that even all of those things that you take credit for, you've only been able to do them because Jesus has given you the ability to do them. He's given you those gifts. He's put you in a place where those gifts can be recognized and used, right? You could have all the same gifts that you have right now, but if you were born in North Korea instead of this country, all those gifts wouldn't go to make you richer. They would just go to make you know, the ruler richer because there's injustice and it's not fair. And, and, and it's not just your gifts that have gotten you where you are. It's all kinds of things beyond your control. And so he's wanting us to learn to trust him for our daily bread. And this is so hard for us. I think even more so for the people back then because we live in a society We have all kinds of things they didn't even dream of. We have savings accounts. We have credit cards. We have refrigerators. You know how revolutionary the refrigerator is? Try living without one. We have dehydrated meals so we can have backup food in case things don't go well in society. And it is too easy for us then to trust in our own planning than in God's provision. But Jesus doesn't operate according to our rules. And he shows, I don't need to have food storage. I can turn stones into bread if I'm hungry. And he's wanting us to learn to see him as the source of all our bread as well. Instead, we don't trust God for our daily bread, right? We trust Harmon's for our daily bread and then Costco for our monthly supply of toilet paper. And it's so easy then to forget that God is our provider every single day. Why do we have all these blessings we have? It's only because of his abundant grace that's allowed our society to flourish in these ways. We just had Thanksgiving, and I encourage all of us to make it a, a, take a moment to be more thankful for the things that God has given us that we take for granted. Right? Maybe one of the best ways to do that is sometimes deprive yourself. This is why I love backpacking, right? Because it makes you thankful for everything that you have instead of just taking it for granted. And Jesus then tells the disciples that if they aren't welcomed in a town, to shake the dust off their feet and head somewhere else. And this is a symbolic act serving as a warning for these people that if you don't embrace God's kingdom, it's not going to go well for you. That, That God is pleading with people to come to him. But he also has a point when he says, well, it's too late now. And so the disciples head out, verse 6, going from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. And what's the result of this? Well, Herod, who's the ruler of, of Galilee, that region where Jesus has spent most of his time, hears of this and he starts to get worried. 
rumors are circulating. Who's this person who's doing these amazing things? Has one of the prophets come back from the dead? He's thinking through the list of possibilities. He thinks, oh, it can't be John the Baptist. I just beheaded him. But has John the Baptist returned to haunt me as a ghost? And I want us to see here that it's when Jesus multiplies his ministry that that's when things really take off. When Jesus empowers others to proclaim the kingdom of God, that's when the rulers start to notice. And it's a reminder for us that we should always be seeking to empower others to serve God with their gifts, to empower others to tell people about Christ, that enabling others to do ministry will often have a bigger impact than just one extremely gifted person. I mean, who's more gifted than Jesus? And yet even Jesus wanted to multiply his ministry, to invite others into the work. It's a good goal, I think, for every Christian to have at least one person that you're trying to help follow Jesus better. And we have our landmark of discipleship, that everybody, no matter who you are, you can be investing in at least one other person's life to help them know Christ more. We just put out those My Five People bookmarks, and we did it last year. Hopefully some of you have, have used them over the year, and we'd love to hear any ways in which God answered some prayers. And take one of those bookmarks and start praying for those people and ask God to show you ways to have spiritual conversations with these folks, to open a door for you to maybe ask a question about what they believe or what their faith is. Because it's going to take every single one of us to reach even just a fraction of this valley. There's so many people who are lost and don't know where to go and who are suffering and hurting and alone and discouraged and depressed. Will the disciples return? And they share all that has happened. They tell all these amazing stories. Wow, Jesus, this thing happened and this thing happened. And this leads us to our second point. God feeds his people. The disciples are tired from all of this work, and so they head out, out of town for some rest to a different region. But the, the crowds learn that Jesus is headed there, and they go to find him. Jesus has gone viral. And we see Jesus' compassion, even though they're all exhausted. He doesn't turn them away, say, hey, guys, sorry, office is closed. Check back out on Monday. No, he loves them. He cares for them. He teaches them. He heals them. And it's starting to get late, and the disciples are getting antsy, right? Wait, we thought this was our time off. How are we going to feed all these people? So they tell Jesus, hey, let's call it a day, right? You've done some good work. Send them back to the village. Let them get food. But then Jesus does something that probably stuns all of them. He says, no, you give them something to eat. I'd imagine if you get a text one day or, you know, on Wednesday, or maybe Thursday morning of Thanksgiving, say, hey, I just invited 5,000 people over. <laughs> right? What would you do? You'd think it was a joke. You'd, you know, freak out. You, you wouldn't know what to do. And this story of feeding the 5,000 is the only story outside of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that appears in every single gospel, right? There's, there's four gospels, four perspectives on Jesus' life, and yet this one shows up in all of them. And, and it's interesting and helpful to see how does each gospel present this story with a different emphasis and highlight different parts. And the thing that jumped out to me here in Luke is I think he's trying to show us the importance 
of trusting God when you face uncertainty, when you face an insurmountable task, when you face something that you can't do on your own. And notice how this story is set right next to when Jesus, right before this, empowers his disciples to go out to share the kingdom, but then he tells them, don't take any food with you. Trust in others to provide. Trust in me to provide. And then here, the disciples are faced with this big task. How are we going to feed thousands? And Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. I think by putting these two stories together, Jesus is showing us that when you face uncertainty, when you face an insurmountable task, the best thing to do is to trust him more than trying to plan out how you're going to solve this puzzle. To trust him more than freaking out. To trust him more than trying to do it in your own power. He's, it, it, Jesus plays by his own rules, right? He's got a different you know, set of economics. He's not dependent on Costco to feed a crowd. But how do the disciples respond? Well, we've only got five loaves and two fish, which we learned from the other Gospels were what some boy, generous boy, gave up as the food he brought. And they say, well, we could go down to the towns to buy food, but we learn in the other Gospels the cost for that would be about half six months of their salary. But the disciples are operating according to the rules of this world. How do you, buy, how do you feed a crowd? You go to Costco. But Jesus is operating according to his own rules. How do you feed people? You trust in God to provide. And notice how in this miracle, there's nothing supernatural or flashy about it. And it's not like bread starts floating down from heaven in front of everybody. Or Jesus doesn't pull out loaves of bread from his cloak and, you know, give them away like Oprah saying, you know, a loaf for you, a loaf for you, a loaf for you. But he just has the people sit down in small groups He takes these couple loaves of fish, he prays for them, he breaks them, and he gives them to his disciples. Again, he's inviting others into his work. He's multiplying his ministry. And then somehow, with details that people have been speculating about for centuries, the loaves never run out. They feed 5,000 men, plus probably a few thousand women and children who were there. And what's the result? Verse 17 they all ate and were satisfied. This wasn't shelf-stable bread that you pull out only in case of emergency. It's good for 25 years, but tastes like styrofoam. It was good bread. It was fresh bread right out of the oven. They were satisfied. And then the disciples have 12 basketfuls of leftovers. God's not skimpy when he provides for his people. He gives them more than enough. And he takes care of them according to his own rules. And he's not looking at the situation and using the economics of Milton Friedman to forecast supply and demand and say, how are we going to feed all these people? Hopefully the farmers, you know, with higher wheat prices will, will harvest, you know, grow more wheat and then everything will settle out over time. Jesus is using the economics of the kingdom of heaven in which there's always enough for those people he cares for. Everyone is fed and satisfied. And I want to apply this to our life just in this one specific way. Are you trusting God to be your provider, to take care of your needs? 
And in this room, there's all kinds of needs. Needs for mental health, financial needs, home needs, housing needs, relational needs, job needs, needs for loved ones, people you care about. And there's two ways we often get this wrong when we, when we face these needs. One is, you think, well, I'm just going to take care of it on my own. I'll find a way. I'll fix it. I'm resourceful. I'm a hard worker. And, and for some of you, this has worked well for most of your life. But in working so well and taking care of you, it's so easy to forget that God is still behind it all. You've maybe forgotten the one who's given you those gifts and abilities to achieve what you've achieved. You've forgotten that he's placed you in a country, in a, in, in a society where those gifts can be used and recognized and flourished. And even the disciples, when they were empowered to drive out demons, though, they were not empowered to not need others, but were specifically called to trust God for their daily provisions and hospitality through others. And for those of you who've made it through life, doing it on your own, you'll come to a point where you realize, I'm facing something now that I'm powerless to solve. And perhaps then you'll realize that God was behind everything you had. When the things that you thought were so stable wash away like sand on a beach. And you realize the things you took for granted were only there because God's grace was providing them for you. The other, the other mistake we make is you see such a huge obstacle in your life and you essentially think, well, this is impossible. You just resign to always being miserable or it never getting fixed or never being changed. There's 5,000 people here. There's no way we can feed them. Don't even try. You resign to always being miserable. Well, we're never going to get what we want. You're scared to get your hopes up that things would change. You think God is stingy. And maybe you have a loved one that you've been praying for for decades but nothing ever seems to change. Or you just look out in our world and see all the wars and the rumors of wars, this contentious election that's fast approaching, the way that just society is becoming so toxic and, and full of hatred, and it's depressing, and you think, there's no way we can fix this. What can I do? You see no reason to be hopeful, but you are thinking according to the rules of this world. And God can upend it all. Jesus wants you to stop looking at these problems that you face, these areas of longing in your life, and stop calculating them, you know, like an accountant, like a strategist, and start thinking of things from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven isn't hindered one bit by anything in this world. The worst situation here doesn't make a difference in God's purposes being achieved. No evil is stronger than God's good. God's plan will always come to fruition. And so the most important thing that you do right now is you seek God's kingdom. You seek Him. You seek the source of all power, and then everything else will be added unto you. Jesus wants you to stop trying to manage things, stop trying to just be discouraged about everything, and instead come to him, the source of all life, the source of all provision, the source of all health, the source of all wealth. And if you seek him first in your life, he says, I will take care of all those other details. Now, 
This doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get that thing you're really wanting to get fixed. You might not get that house or that health or that husband or whatever it is. But in the process, you'll learn that men and women don't live by bread alone or by jobs alone or by a bank account alone or houses alone. But you live by every word that proceeds from God. And he's the one that is most important. And when you start to drink from his goodness and see that he is sufficient, everything will get worked out one way or the other. I love Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms, and it ends with these words. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Sometimes when the things in your life are stripped away, it's leading you to realize that God is the one you most need. That there is a good father who is yours forever, and he will never leave you or forsake you. And if he has your back, everything is going to be okay in the end. And he loves you more than you can imagine. He's a good father. He doesn't take joy in just watching you suffer. He's not stringing you along, teasing you with false expectations. And it's hard to see that sometimes, but just as it's hard for like a one or two-year-old to see their parents really do love them sometimes when they, even though they don't feed them everything they want right at that moment. But God's a good father, and he's leading you towards maturity. And even though if your suffering leads to death, and you die still with these longings, God does not abandon you to the grave and say it's over. But resurrection is coming, and that changes everything. And then the kingdom of heaven will be here, a place where all those tears are wiped away. You'll have no regrets. You'll realize Jesus was so worth it. And the best things of this life that you thought, oh, I need this to be happy, will seem like dim shadows of a reality that your eyes can now see, and, and you'll be able to say, wow, this is so much better. So are you living today with whatever obstacles you face, with a deep trust in God, that he is planting each step exactly where it should be, even if it's not where you want it to be? Trusting that he'll take care of you, in just the right way. And even if you face something that's impossible for you, it feels like it's too late. It's never impossible for God. He's not operating according to your rules. He's not stressed out by having to feed 5,000 people Thanksgiving morning. And he will make all things right. And what he wants you to do today is just take a little step of faithfulness. Right? There wasn't anything flashy in this miracle. It was just, let me just take this bread and start passing it out. It was that act of faith, and it never ran out. So what's that small step of faithfulness you can take today to show you're trusting God, that even though you don't know how it's all going to work, you'll trust that when your hand goes back into that basket for another piece of bread, it's there, and God's provided more than enough. And then in heaven, when you can finally start to see the big picture, and all those tears will be wiped away, you'll see that God is so much better than what you imagined, and you'll wonder why you spent so much time worrying about all these things here on earth.
Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to see things more with the realities of heaven, to see things more with the reality of resurrection, that death never has the last word, but resurrection is coming. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.